Well, we've all watched TV enough to know that a forensic scientist can tell an entire story from blood spatter on a wall or on a floor or a pattern of tire print in the mud. But do they apply that forensic expertise, that forensic knowledge, that level of detail to their own money, I wonder? Make Money Monday's guest this evening. Uh, Forensic scientist David Clatso is on the line to us this evening. What are you up to, David Clatso? It's been a while. Hello, Bruce. Yes, it has been a while, hasn't it? And hello to all your listeners. Um, Well, what I'm up to is that I've now resettled myself uh, about 40 miles south of the Hadrian's Wall. Huh. In Cumbria, in in the heart of the uh, uh, Wordsworth country, I'm on in, in a little town called uh, uh, Penrith. Do you wander lonely as a cloud? There. Yes, indeed, and a host of <laughs> golden daffodils, which we've had lots of. So <laughs> now, um, give, I mean, we've, uh, yeah, if you watch enough BBC murder mysteries, you know there's plenty of work for forensic scientists. But uh, are you working or are you retired? No, I am working. I'm still working. I've got a number of people that I'm helping in South Africa still. Okay. Uh, people run into problems which require negotiating skills and knowledge of forensic science to uh, to deal with with uh, uh, various big companies that sometimes step a little bit out of line, and um, that's keeping me occupied. Um, and I'm sure that I will do similar work here. Okay, so you so you're not hanging up your what do what 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 do forensic scientists hang up your surgical gloves your I don't know my my, my microscope no I'm not hanging microscope. up the microscope at all <laughs> and if if I did probably my wife would be forced to kill me no no um, and then and who would I'm, be there to solve the crime I mean that's the trouble nobody suppose, that's uh, the problem you see it so is I, the I don't want that I, I I need to work to keep semi sane. Uh, and everybody around you too, clearly. Um, are, are you enjoying yourself? You're suddenly very relaxed. I am. I'm loving it here, Bruce. I'm loving it in, in the UK. The sense of, of uh, um, f- fear that I had about the criminal, the rise in criminal um, uh, activity in South Africa is not with me here. There's very little. I mean, we see more murders in, in a day in South Africa than this country has in a year. Yeah. So uh, I think um, is is that entirely accurate, or is that uh, for hyperbole? I mean, what fifty-seven murders no, a day think, in South I think Africa? That's about right. Fifty-seven really? murders a day. Yeah, fifty-seven yeah. murders a day in South Africa. Yeah. Okay. And let's talk about money. It's a far more cheerful, okay. a, to- a far more cheerful topic. What's your earliest memory of this stuff? Did you did did the Clatsos um, grow up on on the money side of the tracks? No. No, in fact, we didn't. We lived in a little town called Brackpan, and my earliest uh, indication that money was important, I mean, I, I used to come home and play in the mud and from school and uh, eat supper and be sent off to bath and go to bed. And money wasn't part of the, of the conversation with me anyway. Uh, my first knowledge of it was uh, when everything went pear-shaped for the family and my father took whatever money the family had and quite a bit of money that uh, the family didn't have and he put it on a horse that I think is still running. <laughs> so I mean, so we laughing. lost everything. Not laughing. Not laughing. We, lost, we lost the lot. It was a, it was a gambling com- compulsion. And from then on, it was very tight with money. There was never money to do anything other than the bare, bare, bare necessities. So, was dad yeah. allowed to stay involved with the family after? Oh, no, uh, he did. On a horse, he did. It, it wasn't a terribly happy 
uh, situation. Um, but I think, I think in fairness to my father, he was suffering to a large extent, I think, after the war. You must remember, I was born into the shadow of the Second World War. And I think that dad probably had a significant undiagnosed dose of post-traumatic stress disorder. He went up north. He fought very bravely, I thought. Uh, because had he been captured by the Germans, being Jewish, he would have not had yeah. a happy time. Um, and uh, the family itself uh, also had a fair amount of stress. My mother had stress. Uh, my father's family lost people in the concentration camps. And um, yeah, it it was a it was a it was a time that was fraught with all sorts of problems. Not least of which, as I say, having to upend and leave Brackpan and go to a little town in the eastern Transvaal called Standerton, where my father was very lucky to get a job. But having said that, uh, the fellow that he worked for didn't give him a rise for more than 10 years until, until the son-in-law of this chap said, you can't do that. So money was always tight. Yeah. I mean, did I mean, did you as you grew? Were there discussions about money? Was it always money as a no. rare commodity? Were there no discussions at all about it? No, no. There was there was always my mother stressing about money, but I I I tended to to zone out and not 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 listen and not get involved. I was I was quite young when all this happened. Sure. I mean, I was about eight, and I I I I managed to develop a healthy disrespect for money. Uh, for the rest of my life, and it stayed with me forever. I, I don't do anything that is money orientated. Explain. Well, for instance, when I when I when I went to university, I went to university on a, on on an Anglo-American. It was an Ernest Oppenheimer scholarship, and there was very little money. In fact, many a month uh, we the, the 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 till would run dry before I got to the end of the month. So it was a hungry, lonely, very difficult time. Uh, I'm sure there are other people who had it far worse, but in my cohort of students, I was probably at the bottom end of the, the feeding order in terms of availability of money. And when I, when I went on to do a PhD, again, PhD students and postgraduate students are not known to be rolling in money unless there's an external source. So I, I worked at a pittance for a pittance at the University of Medical School, uh, of Witwatersrand Medical School, until I finished my PhD. And then for the first time ever, I, I went off and got a job. I'd had a sort of a job at the Wits Tech before going on to do my PhD, but that didn't last long. I went for two years and then I had a part-time job teaching. I was the science mistress at uh, Kingsmead School for Girls um, for two years uh, while I was doing my PhD. And then I went full-time into PhD. So there were times when there was never a lot of money around. Um, and one one lived from hand to mouth, basically. Well, one one you know one one thinks of uh, people with PhDs, particularly medical PhDs, real doctors, um, uh, and you kind of go, well, that's a that's a well paying job. Um, did uh, did you what what was your specialization when you when you did qualify? Well, well I, I graduated as a biochemist, and I did medical biochemistry. So I left medicine because I didn't want to do clinical medicine. I wanted to do research. And I found in the early days of my medical training, medical school, that the, the depth of understanding I could get from the straight medical course was not going to serve my purpose. And so I left and did an honors degree in biochemistry. 
And I then went on after that to do a degree in, in medical biochemistry, specializing in, in cell membranes and cancer. And I did work which is still being quoted today um, as a result of that PhD. Um, and uh, uh, But it's not a well-paying job. Uh, research scientists are not well paid. Medicine, you can make a lot of money sure, if you want to. But certainly, uh, and when you say real doctors, um, I didn't have a plastic doctorate. I had a PhD. No, but that, that thing, there's, there's a Tony Grogan cartoon uh, where yeah. Tony Grogan was, he was with independent newspapers for many, many years. And there's, a, there's a, a, an Eastern Cape farmer leaning against a fence asking a man in a white jacket, are you a real doctor or just one of those things from Rhodes? Um, and that's why when I have these slightly <laughs> obtuse references to real doctors, I'm talking about doctors with medical qualifications, not those who are artists and, you know, everybody else. But lovely, very clever to get those kind of doctorates. Um, but uh, not not the medical kind, which are necessary. Uh, the, the real research gets done, the real research gets done by people with PhDs. And recently there's been a lot of information coming out about the, the damage done by the Publish or Perish Brigade uh, to the medical literature. In fact, most, most of the medical literature, a great deal of it, 60% probably, is unrepeatable research. And that's a scary thing when you realize that often people out there are using that literature to determine the kind of treatment that you would get. So, um, and recently also the, the editors of Lancet and another very senior journal, I think it might have been NEJM, New England Journal of Medicine. It might not have been, but certainly Lancet was one of them, came out and said that, that most of the stuff they'd been publishing over the last 25, 30 years was absolute rubbish. And I saw was, I saw uh, that commentary of Lancet. I mean, it was a ter- it was a devastating prognosis for for the medical uh, for the for the for the medical industry. I mean, when you when you look at COVID and you look at the stuff that we have sort of come face to face with in terms of uh, the, this massive outbreak of a virus and this pandemic status of the virus, um, does it give you hope for the future of medicine and proper research into the future? The uh, reliance and maybe a, a focus on what's important in the world once again. No, it doesn't actually, because one of the things that you'll notice about the the, the talking heads on on the, the COVID story was that there've been many people with many suggestions, many pontifications, and they had one thing mostly in common: they were all wrong. <laughs> the, the the levels the levels of deaths were far lower than everybody sure. thought. We still don't know whether the the use of chloroquine is good or bad. There's fake news all over the place. Um, I predicted from the pathophysiology of the disease well before the Oxford team uh, came came public with it that probably steroids and anticoagulants would be the right thing to use. And indeed, they probably are the right thing to use judiciously. Um, and that it was, in fact, rather than a, than a pulmonary disease, it was probably a vascular disease. And that, too, is probably correct. So from from that point of view... I don't have a lot of hope, and I think that one's got to be very cautious about replacing religion um, in any way, shape, or form with, uh, as uh, one writer put it, the Medical and Dental Council. I think one should be very cautious, and one should be very sensible about the kind of treatment. Many of the many of the medical treatments that have been given over the last thirty-five years have been very, very, very damaging mm. to a patient. And Ivan, Ivan Illich started a book that he wrote called 
medical nemesis, I think it was, uh, with a memorable phrase saying the medical profession has become a major threat to health. So one's got to be very cautious about mixing mixing money and medicine. They don't, Have that's you? Not a good, not a no. good mixture. Do you take anything at face value? Absolutely no. anything. Do you challenge no. absolutely everything anybody claims to be fact? Bruce, you've got to take a sensible look at being skeptical. And you must remember that, that I grew up in the 60s and started reading those authors, such as Vance Packard and Thomas Zaz, who wrote The Myth of Mental Illness. And you, I don't know if you remember the, the Waste Makers and the Pyramid Climbers and the Hidden Persuaders. Those books all encouraged a huge level of skepticism. And that skepticism is never, you've got to question everything. Questioning is the lifeblood of any scientist. Does that skepticism then, how does that lead you to money? Because you uh, you do pick a lot of fights with financial institutions. You do uh, take the side of the underdog in many, many fights. What's, how, does do, that relate, how does that relate always, to unless, your financial experience? Unless, Bruce, I take the fight of the underdog as long as they occupy the moral high ground. If I find a client of mine has been involved in skullduggery, I have a standard phrase. I say to them, go away. I do not drive getaway cars for anybody. And by the way, that is true for the, the big financial institutions. And they've had many a fight with me, and I've won most of my fights with them. And the reason that I've won them is that normally I can occupy the high ground. And normally, I discovered very early on in my career, to my great financial cost, that many of the big insurance companies didn't want an honest report from me. They wanted undying loyalty and unquestioned loyalty. In fact, the late Jimmy McIntosh used to say to me, if you work against me, you will never work for me, which is the wrong thing for an expert because I've got to then get in a witness box and say, I'm an independent expert, which you can't do if, if the, the insurance company that you're working for has you firmly financially under their control. So you've got to be, and that's why I started a company many years ago called Queensbury, which was obvious reasons called Queensbury because I Boxing. played by the Queensbury rules, and I played fair. Does is fair financially lucrative? No, no, it's a disaster. <laughs> if I were to tell you how much that cost me yeah. in terms of finance, the insurance companies ran away from me. And I, I suddenly found that the, the, the vast amount of money which I'd spent uh, for, on, on equipment uh, provided me with some very expensive desk weights. And so having, having a, an attitude of you play it fair and you don't, you don't allow the insurance company to dictate to you as a professional what you should say or what you shouldn't say was disastrous financially. Are you financially and, secure today? No, I don't own a cent. In any, anything that was gained, that was built up in any way, shape or form over the many years went into my wife's name. I don't, I don't own, a, I own the clothes that, I'm, that I stand up in. I don't have anything. As a family, are you secure then? Uh, no, Because you don't terribly. want to be sued, don't you? No, I don't. I'm not, I'm not at all secure financially. We are, we are, we are, we are eking out a living in England. Uh, we're in, we're enjoying living here for the the reasons. My children are here. My son is doing a postdoc at Cambridge. My daughter is about to burst into the 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 market of uh, catering and events events management, which she's rather rather good at. 
and uh, as soon as COVID. But certainly, I wouldn't call myself. I wouldn't call myself uh, financially secure. We will live the rest of my days. Uh, we will eke out an existence, and that's the way I want it. I don't want to sit down. I mean, for, I mean, you're going to find this horrifying, Bruce. No, I, mean, so. I had. I was. I was forced over the years to have somebody draw up a balance sheet for me. And I took one look at the first one 35 years ago. I didn't understand it. I bought a book on, on accountancy. It made no sense to me at all. And I felt that if you're going to do something, do what you, shoemaker keep you to your last was my attitude. And I, 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 I tried to appoint accountants to manage my financial affairs. And that was a disaster because I went through I, only the last accountant that I ever came across was in any way of help to me. And the first one got arrested and would have ended up in jail had he not escaped his penalty <laughs> by dying. So, you know, I, I have a very low low view of most accounts, except the last one who was very helpful and, and made a huge difference. But um, when you run a practice for forensics, number one, you find that that Cash flow is always a problem. Insurance companies seem to revel in the notion that they can keep you. I have to. I have to stop you. Uh, I wish we could carry on chatting. I mean, I've I've missed uh, I've missed our chats, and I'm delighted to have caught up with you a little bit this evening. But thank you for sharing your disdain of the financial industry, of accountants, and of money with us this evening on the Money Show.